Welcome to Thou Shalt Not Suffer, the Witch Trial Podcast. I'm Josh Hutchinson. And I'm Sarah Jack. We're going back to Massachusetts this week. But not to Salem. That's right. We're taking a field trip this week. So pack a snack and enjoy the ride. You'll love this fun conversation along the way. We talk about the Boston Witch Trials. That's right. There were witch trials in Boston long before the court of Warrior and Terman are convened in Salem. We talk about Margaret Jones, Elizabeth Kendall, Alice Lake, Anne Hibbins, Goody Glover, and Elizabeth Morse. And we learn a valuable lesson that we can all apply today. Alyssa G.A. Connery is a historian and writer. She will be giving her Boston Witch Trials presentation at History Camp this month, and she was kind enough to discuss some of it with Josh and myself. Grab your beverage, pull up your chair, and lean in. We hear that there were witch trials in Boston. Is that true? Yes, there absolutely were. <laughs> and approximately what years were these held? What kind of range are we sure. looking at? There's a little bit of a question as to when the first was. It was usually people say 1648, but it's possible that it was 1647. And then that goes into the mid-17th century, and the last execution for the first era is 1656, and there's no executions for a really long time. There's some trials, but no executions. And then you have 1688, you have another execution. And then after that is Salem. So <laughs> that's just like a totally different story. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. What are some of the key differences to make that a different story. Salem is a witchcraft panic. It's funny because you always want people to understand that witchcraft prosecution was not strange then. That was pretty normal because people believed in witches. But even within the history of witchcraft prosecution, Salem was an outlier because before Salem in Massachusetts had just been like putting one or two people on trial at a time. There was periods of time in between. It was usually for some mundane misfortune or something like that, that someone would be accused. There were also more serious cases. People thought people were being murdered by witchcraft, but which fascinates me. But that's, again, that's a whole other thing. So for the most part, it was just these pretty simple cases and they didn't execute many people. I don't think they liked to execute people for witchcraft. The execution rate was pretty low. Then you get to Salem and it's a full-blown witch panic. And you have the afflicted people. They're mostly girls, but there were some others. Geographically, it's much wider than it had been in the past. There's way more suspects. There's tons of people in jail. And then you've got these judges who are using pretty much any kind of evidence that they want to use and just convicting literally everybody that they tried in 1692 was convicted and sentenced to death. So it's just something that is an outlier from the rest of the history of witchcraft in Massachusetts. And you're going to be talking a little bit about this at History Camp. What is History Camp? Yeah, history camp is awesome. I think I went, I think it was maybe the first or second history camp that I actually went to in 2015, I want to say. And my 
well, he wasn't my husband then. He's my husband now. We were best friends back then, but we were just like super excited about going to this because we're big history people. And it sounded like perfectly nerdy and perfect for us. So we went that year and didn't speak or anything, but it was just, it's just a full day of history lectures and you get to choose which one you want to go to. (laughs) So there are different slots and like at any given time, there's like several different lectures going on. So you can choose, okay, I want to go to listen to this topic or that topic. And then this goes all day from nine to five. So it's just basically the best thing a nerd could ever attend. I really hope to be able to do that sometime. It sounds like a festival for history nerds. It's great. It started as just this event. And then the founders of the event went on to, I think it was in 2019, they created a nonprofit organization called the Pursuit of History to oversee history camp. And then they started taking it to different places. Like I think there's one in Virginia now and there's one in Philadelphia. That's the latest one. Started in Boston, but it's it's spreading like Salem witchcraft. Sorry, that was yeah. lame. <laughs> That's a perfect <laughs> analogy. It's, a, <laughs> it's an exciting and positive one, though. <laughs> yeah. You had mentioned early on that there was a gap in the executions between, I think, 1656 and 1688. Why was there such a long period where they weren't executing anyone? I think they, like I said, they didn't like to execute people. I think for a long time that they were just, yeah, we're not really going to do that anymore. Maybe, you know, it wasn't a conscious decision, but it was just, they were just very, it was actually a situation where from the top, the court of assistance, the judges, the center of the thing in Boston, they were like a mitigating force on this witchcraft accusing. So they'd be like, you know, this, okay, we'll hear this case, but it was hard to prove in court. So it was hard. It was really, it was hard to get a conviction. And then you have 1688, which happens. That one's kind of weird because you do have afflicted children. So it's like a, it's like a lead up to Salem. There is an execution in that case. But before that, I just, I think that they were just slow to want to execute people, which I feel like the stereotype of Massachusetts Puritans is probably just the opposite. But in my opinion, they didn't want to do it. They felt like they had to sometimes, but they didn't love doing it. Yeah. In the early years, Connecticut was the place where you were more likely to get hanged. And that really surprises people. Yeah. Connecticut in the 1660s had a big witch panic. And that was huge until Salem happened and Salem was much bigger. But yeah, Connecticut was not a good place to be accused of witchcraft. In the 1688 case, was that Goody Glover? It's Goody Glover. Yep. And why was she chosen as a scapegoat? She was Irish. And it's interesting because there is that scapegoating aspect of witch hunting. But at the same time, usually the majority of people that are being accused are members of the community who are basically just like their accusers, the same religion, oftentimes their neighbors, they're pretty much like the same people that they're accusing. It's like this purge from within a community. But you would have once in a while, you'd have someone who was inside a community, but who was an outsider on the inside. And that's the case with Goody Glover. She was an Irish Catholic woman and her first language was Irish Gaelic. She was someone who stood out and that could be part of the reason why she was accused to begin with. How many people were executed before Salem? Before Salem in Massachusetts, it's five people. 
And who was the first one? The first one, that's a little bit confusing because it could have either been, most sources say Margaret Jones, but there's some question as to when Elizabeth Kendall was executed. It could have been earlier, but we're positive because the sources are very bare. (laughs) And what are those early sources that discuss those two ladies? So for the most part, with the five who are executed, who are the ones I've done the most research and reading on, there are no trial records for any of them, any of the five. There's some kind of strange gaps in the Court of Assistance records. They're, they're missing basically all of the early stuff. I think it's in like the 1670s that the record kind of begins. So they're missing the early stuff. And then strangely, they're missing like 1687 and 1688, which is exactly when Goody Glover happens. So you really don't have court records for these five women, but you have contemporary accounts. So with Margaret Jones, you have Governor Winthrop, his journal, which is great. And you also have John Hale's book, Reverend John Hale's book, Modest Inquiry into the Nature of Witchcraft. And then for Elizabeth Kendall, I think it's just Hale. That's the only source we have for her. And so we know it was sometime between 1647 and 1651, but we can't exactly be sure when. What does he say about her? For Elizabeth Kendall? Yeah. So he basically, he was very small. He actually visited some of these people in jail, John Hale, when he was a child. I don't remember if he visited Elizabeth Kendall. It might have been actually Margaret Jones that he visited. But for Elizabeth Kendall, so what happened with her was she's interesting because you always hear People believed in witchcraft, so no, there wasn't a lot of fraud. And I do believe that. I don't think that there was a lot of fraud, people accusing people, knowing that they were lying about it. But this is a case where it's pretty obvious. That's what happened. So a nurse, so Elizabeth Kendall, she was from Cambridge. A nurse from Watertown accused her of bewitching a child to death. And the nurse testified that, this is what she said here, I actually have her words, Elizabeth did make much of the child, and then the child was well, but quickly changed its color and died in a few hours after. So what happened is Goodman Jennings, who was the father of the child, he was apparently unaware of the evidence that was given against Elizabeth because after she was executed, we don't know what was said in court or what the evidence was in court because we don't have the record. But after her execution, a deputy to the general court named Richard Brown went and talked to the Jennings family. And he asked whether the family had suspected Elizabeth of murdering their child. And the father was like, no, they thought the child's death was the nurse's fault because she had kept the child outside in the cold for too long. And this is the same nurse who testified against Elizabeth. So basically, it looks like what happened was she just blamed Elizabeth for something that she had actually done. So the nurse was subsequently actually imprisoned for adultery, Hale says. And she gave birth to a child, apparently, in jail. And Richard Brown, the deputy to the general court, he visited her in jail and then apparently told her, and I have that quote as well, it was just with God to leave her to this wickedness as a punishment for her murdering Goody Kendall by her false witness bearing. So there is a very clear example, early example, of a fraudulent witchcraft accusation. Wow, that's so interesting because that's like a question people have often about the different cases. And here is the story. That is the story. And then I was curious, you're calling her a nurse. How is that different than 
So like for non-historians who hear that healers or midwives are involved in witch trials, what's that role of the nurse? Yeah, you know what? I'm not sure, to be honest, why she is called a nurse. I think that might have just been like a modern word that they used to call her. I'm not sure that was actually in the historic testimony that they called her a nurse. I would have to double check about that. But but yeah, you get to you're mentioning that the healer midwife sort of myth, which I've actually been thinking a lot about lately. So you can see that people in the medical profession were also accusing others. So it wasn't it wasn't just people coming after healers and midwives. Actually, midwives mostly gave evidence against accused witches because they would be the ones who would search their bodies for witch marks. But that being said, there is something to it. There's some kernel of truth in this this myth that healers were targeted. I don't think that there's evidence in New England for the doctors going after midwives. That's one big myth. I don't think there's evidence for that. But, and Paul Moyer, actually, who just recently published a book about witch hunting in the Atlantic world, he looks at New England, but he ties it into things that were happening in England at the same time. So he describes it really well. He says that there's no like clear connection between midwifery and uh, witchcraft accusations, but there is this sort of connection between like healing in general and like medical practice in general, because being a healer, you'd be put in these situations where someone could end up dying under your care. And then that was the perfect opportunity for a family member to accuse you of witchcraft. So just by the nature of the profession, you were more vulnerable, I think. I don't think that there were a lot of healers accused, but it did happen. There's some truth to it, for sure. Yeah, I haven't seen many that stand out as like professional healers. I've seen a lot who seem to have had things in their medicine cabinet, so to speak, that they use to treat people within their own home. Yeah, Yeah. of course. Yeah, which is what mainly would be the role of the woman in this. As far as the people who were known as healers, I think out of the like 27 that are tried in Mass Bay before Salem, I think there's only four who are really known as being healers in their community. So it did happen, but probably wasn't an organized conspiracy against healers and midwives. We did some research when we were working on our episodes that we put out on the Connecticut history and looking at some of those individuals. And sometimes an author would label somebody a healer, but there was maybe one thing mentioned that could be viewed it in a different way even, or just as the medicine cabinet healer. Right. Is there there record or diary or anything that ever talks about one of these women who, you know, was doing that for her neighbors regularly? I think with the four that are more known as healers in their communities, there's, I don't know of any diaries. I just know of contemporary accounts of their accusations. I know, let's see, there's one, Mary Hale. She's a Boston widow. She had a sort of, I don't want to call it a hospital, but like a place where people came to be like cared for. And this ended up not, it didn't end well for her because she was accused of witchcraft, but she was acquitted. So she was never executed. 
But for the most part, like Josh was saying, it's unclear because medical care was usually done at home by the woman in the house. So someone could be involved with healing, but not necessarily be known as a healer. And Mary Hale is my 10th great grandmother. Stop it. Are you serious? If, like the records indicate, that she was indeed Winifred Benham's mother. Have you looked at that at all? No, I haven't. Winifred Benham was, and her daughter, Winifred Jr., were the last case tried in Hartford in 1697. But if Uh you go back to Mary Hale's case, her Mm -hmm. granddaughter, Joanna, ties Mary and Winifred because Joanna is Winifred's daughter. Runs in families, right? (laughs) Yeah. And it's interesting. Both Mary and Winifred Sr. disappear from the record after their trials. There's nothing that shows when they died or where they went. Joanna, you can trace into New York. And Winifred Jr., you can trace her marriage too. But both of those senior women, we know nothing after they were acquitted. Yeah, I know. There's so many like that because 17th century women, there's not much to start with. There's not that much out there about them. So, yes, so many of these women, we do lose them after the trials. That's the last we hear of them. But that's fascinating, Mary. So you're a hail. Wow. Very cool. Yeah. And I didn't understand that connection until our (laughs) Connecticut Witch Trial Exoneration Project started because we just were doing more research. And since that's my direct Winifred was my interest in the Connecticut witch trials. That case, there's a lot of, it's not misinformation, but it's not primary source information that's been passed around where she's possibly buried, which there's actually no indication of her burial because there's no indication of her death either. But there's a really great article that I found that talks about the trial records for Mary Hale. And then that's how that author made the connection. And that was exciting to me because that was like, oh, this is record. Because with Winifred and Winifred Jr., there's not much actual trial record. For Mary Hale, there is an entry in the Court of Assistance that mentions her. There's not transcripts. I don't think there are trial transcripts for any of them. But yeah, I do remember seeing Mary Hale was mentioned in the Court of Assistance records. As a widow from Boston. Yeah. Were there other cases that you know of witchcraft being passed down in the family? Oh, yeah, for sure. The one that comes to mind right now is Anne Bird from Lynn, who is one of the women actually who was known as a healer in, in the community. And she was tried and evidently acquitted. I don't know if there's an actual record of her acquittal but she shows up later so we know she wasn't executed so she was probably acquitted her granddaughter is elizabeth proctor from the salem trials so there was that suspicion hanging on her because of her grandmother being accused of witchcraft i think it is mentioned at least once yeah it was curious about that how many of these earlier trials in massachusetts maybe had some connections to Salem or other trials. You have the same, it's the same guys in charge in the mid to late 17th century. So you have some of the same judges 
at the trials. Mary Hale's acquittal, you have Nathaniel Saltonstall, William Stoughton, Bartholomew Gedney, and John Richards are the judges involved, and she's acquitted. Mary Webster, 1683, you have William Stoughton and Bartholomew Gedney, and also acquitted. James Fuller, acquitted in 1683 also, you have William Stoughton, which just makes me wonder if he was just seething because <laughs> we know he was very enthusiastic about convicting witches. There must have been, like I said, these sort of other forces that were keeping it in check back in the 1680s. And then when Salem happened, he just got to let it rip pretty much. So, yeah, you do have some of the same guys that are you know, on the court of assistance. And then you have a couple of Salem victims who are actually accused for the first time earlier in the century. Susanna Martin, who's actually my husband's ancestor. She was acquitted of witchcraft in 1669. And then you have Bridget Bishop. She's acquitted in, presumably acquitted, because obviously she wasn't killed until later, in 1680. So she isn't Bridget Bishop yet. She's Bridget Oliver at that time. So you do have some people showing up in more than one story and then showing up again in Salem, for sure. That was so enjoyable to hear you say who was sitting at her trial, Mary Hales. Thank you. I had not seen that yet. It's four of the guys who were on the court of Oyer and Terminer. And I think it's interesting that Saltonstall was on there. He's ah. the one who early on, he's, you know what, I don't have the stomach for this. I'm going to gonna take off, we presume. It is and, uh, fascinating. Yeah. It's the same guys. It's just something changed. Basically, what changed for Salem was that there was no one in charge. <laughs> the charter was revoked. And even though they had this new charter in 1691, they hadn't reestablished the courts or the laws yet. So it was Governor Phipps was like, let's set up this court illegally. And the judges got to pretty much convict people however they wanted to. That's one reason why Salem got so out of hand, because these guys are, it's the inmates running the asylum here. There are no rules. There's no one in charge, really. It makes me think of this meme that I've seen. The guy hands a note to this officer and the officer reads it and it says, oh, this just says you can do whatever you want. It's basically what happens. That's what Phipps gave to William Stoughton. He had carte blanche. Phipps didn't want anything to do with it. He just wanted it to go away. So he just hands it over to them and is, okay, do what needs to be done. Whereas the Boston court was running for more than just... Exactly. Yep. It was a center of political power and it was there was checks and balances, which is not, again, what people think about Puritan New England as being this moderate place. It is, obviously, it's religiously driven, but they took laws seriously and they didn't, like I said, I, they didn't want to execute a bunch of people. Yeah, it, it, and it changes. It changes and it has a lot to do with the politics. And I think the best book for understanding kind of the situation with the charter and with the political climate is Emerson Baker's Storm of Witchcraft. If anybody's really interested in learning more about the judges and the politics, he does a really excellent job of explaining that whole dynamic. I'm wondering, was there? A lot of spectral evidence involved in cases outside of Salem? No, absolutely not. It was not seen as very reliable or valid evidence. And of course, in England, you have these guys writing handbooks on how to prosecute witches. And there's some differing opinions. Some of them do put stock in spectral evidence and others say, no, it can't be used to prove witchcraft. 
But for the most part, I think in New England in the 17th century, no, they didn't want to use that to convict people. The big thing that would get you convicted was a confession. Again, before Salem, because Salem is completely different. But before Salem, you want to get that confession. But that doesn't happen very often. So another way to get a conviction would be to have two witnesses who witness the same sort of witchcraft. And that was another big way to get people convicted. But no, spectral evidence was not really seen as a reliable way to prosecute people. I think with Elizabeth Morse from Newberry, who actually was convicted in 1679, but then reprieved. Actually, I think it's John Hale who later says her being reprieved might have had something to do with the fact that the judges did use some spectral evidence to convict her. and then subsequently realized, okay, maybe we shouldn't have done that. So yeah, no, it was not reliable. And then again, like we've said a million times, and then in Salem, it was just like night and day. It was just like, okay, we're just going to use it. It was a free for all. Yeah. And it's like you said, a lot of the same people making the decision. Yes. I know. Which suddenly includes spectral evidence. It makes you wonder what they were thinking at those earlier trials where people were being acquitted. I think about Stoughton just probably super angry every single time someone was acquitted. He had to play by the rules. <laughs> he was ready to unleash when 1692 came. Yeah, he was ready. He was ready. To me, he's the biggest villain. He's the biggest Salem villain in my mind, for sure. Yeah, I agree. One that judge that surprises me is Waitstill Winthrop. Because his father, John Winthrop Jr., was very opposed to spectral evidence, and he brought in the two-witness rule into Connecticut, which trial cases. And then Wade Stills, like, whatever, Dad. John Winthrop Jr., it's funny, and then you go back to his father, and his father was just, like, super haunted by all of this stuff and did some very strange things. But yeah, it is interesting that Wade Still Winthrop then... Maybe it was a way to differentiate himself from his father. Sided with granddad or something. I mean, I think Winthrop was pretty earnest in wanting to believe what he thought was the right thing to believe. But yeah, you can't read his diary without thinking, wow, I was such a jerk. Yeah, he said some pretty interesting things. And the antinomian controversy, he did some pretty questionable things yeah that it is really interesting to look at those three generations and how their opinions differed and their actions differed for sure yeah i noticed the victims we've talked about so far have all been women why were women the predominant victims of witch trials the short answer is that they were believed to be more susceptible to the devil and i always giggle to myself when i see that in in a book and the scholar will say it wasn't because of misogyny. It was because they were believed to be more susceptible to witchcraft. And then I say to myself, isn't that pretty misogynistic? I don't know. And this is in every book about witchcraft, but it's just a few yeah. times I've these people dance around it. They don't want it. They don't want to admit that it's misogyny, but it's absolutely an aspect. I think it wasn't, again, just like with the midwives, I don't think it was this coordinated conspiracy like, oh, we're going to call them witches just so we can kill them. No, they really believed in witches for the most part. But yeah, they thought women were more likely to be witches. And something like four out of five of people accused, I think I, I want to say it was four out of five, were women. Something like 80 to 90 
8%, I want to say. And that differed in other parts of the world. There were some places where actually more men were accused. But when we're talking about England and New England, there is an aspect of misogyny to it. Women were definitely more likely to be believed to be witches, for sure. I wish there was more information on Thomas Jones. There's some secondary mentioning of his being accused or arrested after his wife had been hanged for witchcraft. I don't know any more than that, but I know that's like somewhat different than some of the other situations where the husband and the wife were arrested together and then the husband was not found guilty. That would be in Connecticut or the couple in Connecticut where they were both found guilty. I want to know more of this backstory with the Jones that when his wife was hanged, it wasn't over. I wish I knew. And then is he the first man that we know of in Massachusetts who was accused? I'm not sure about that. That is pretty, pretty early. He's definitely one of the first. And he is absolutely, he's put in jail, but he's never prosecuted, I don't think. And then you get to the Parsons where it's the opposite. But yeah, you do see these sort of like married sort of duos where they'll both be accused. But generally speaking, it was much more likely that the wife would be executed, statistically speaking. So there you go again. Yeah. And it's really similar. We've had guests on recently talking about witch hunts today. And you still see that pattern with the women in most locations. There are like regions of Papua New Guinea where more men are accused, regions of other nations where more men are accused. But overall, it's still that very high ratio of women to men. And I think it's a bigger question. Why do men kill women? Like I said, it's not the witchcraft accusations. It's not a coordinated conspiracy, clearly, but there's got to be some reason why men kill women. It's just, it's always been that way. It's still that way today. I I think we have to ask those questions, like why? And maybe instead of shying away from the misogyny piece, confront it. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. We need to do it for the future victims. Yeah. Discussing it, talking about it. Those conversations have to become more comfortable. Yeah, absolutely. I think as far as like the witchcraft scholarship goes, the early stuff, the Margaret Murray and all of that and the fertility cults and the people wanted to react against that scholarship and didn't want to make it about misogyny. But it's there. It's there and we can't ignore it. It's pretty plain when you see the comments of some of the people in the New England witch trials, at least some of the comments that the men made about the women, like Cotton Mather's not my favorite guy. He's not, he's not so nice when he writes about say Martha Carrier as a rampant hag and John Winthrop's not so kind calling everybody a witch and everything. Oh, well, yeah, man, he writes some real misogynistic stuff. Cotton Mather, he's fascinating to me because initially he's telling the judges to use caution at Salem. And then he becomes the guy who does the whole government defense of the trials. But yeah, yeah. One thing, Winthrop, he really, the way he wrote about Margaret Jones to me was like, wow, 
he talks about her behavior, quote unquote, at her trial. And I have his quote here somewhere and it's just, here it is. Her behavior at trial was very intemperate, lying notoriously and railing upon the jury and witnesses. And in the distemper, she died. The same day and hour she was executed, there was a very great tempest at Connecticut, which blew down many trees. And it's, dude, like, if you were about to be executed, maybe you'd be acting intemperately. Like, I think, and then you get the the account from Hale about her. And Hale is saying, you know, he went to visit Margaret and they had urged her to confess. And she had insisted, as for witchcraft, this is the quote, as for witchcraft, she was wholly free from it. And so she said unto her death, and it just gives her like more of this like earnest sort of victim description of her as like this earnest victim. And then you have Winthrop, who's basically describing her as like this crazy woman who's yelling and screaming. But of course she was like she was going to be executed for something that she was denying and she was terrified and she was angry. And it's just like what he says. It's just just being a crazy woman, just lying and railing upon people and. Yeah, that one has always really bothered me. <laughs> yeah, that's like blaming her for you just saying, Being oh, scared? she was hysterical. And uh, exactly. You know, that's he what doesn't it's use the word. Much. Yes, she's a hysterical woman. Yeah. It's like women weren't allowed to beat people at so many times in history and even today, but we don't even have to touch that. Obviously, it's an issue. Obviously, misogyny is an issue. It always has been and it is still today. I wonder how Margaret's fight for her life, since she was one of the early ones, you know, intimidated the next women. Yeah. It didn't play out well for her, her fight, did it? And then they're being read or reading the account. Uh There was the hearsay of the account or they witnessed it and then how she was recorded in history. That's, it's terrifying. There's also this account after she is indicted of her sitting with her friend, Alice Stratton. And the account was given that she, that Alice Stratton had a Bible on her lap and they were both crying. And that has always hit me pretty hard, too. Margaret Jones is fascinating to me, and I just wish that we knew more about her. So you get this whole gamut of emotions from this woman who's facing this terrifying thing. And... It just makes it so real yeah. when you read these accounts. Yeah. Makes it so immediate and scary. And I'm sure people reading about that, hearing about that more likely would have been terrifying to hear. For sure. Yeah. And possibly at that point, she had hoped that someone was going to hear her message and hear her plea. It was worth fighting for it because what if somebody yeah. stands up for her? Exactly. And nobody did. And apparently she made the weather really bad in Connecticut. Yeah. Somehow. somehow. <laughs> that that was a big that was a big witchcraft belief back then was that witches could control the weather. But yeah, it's it's very sad. On this topic of misogyny, I was thinking mm-hmm. about how the women were physically examined, at least at Salem, <laughs> were they Physically inspected in these earlier trials as well? Yeah. And that would actually mostly be by other women. Mm -hmm. And yeah, I mean, they went on in the earlier trials to try to find the witch's teat or the witch's mark that was not 
good enough to convict someone, but it was good, like corroborating evidence if they had other evidence. And God knows what they were actually looking at. I actually think Alice Stratton had something to say about that because they did supposedly find a witch's mark on Margaret Jones. Yeah, she they found a witch's teat. And Alice Stratton says it's just an injury related to childbirth. Like Rebecca Nurse. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. They're seeing these marks or whatever, which probably have perfectly reasonable explanations. But but yeah, they are. It is. It's it's an assault. It's an assault. Be their bodies being searched for sure. That, like I said, it was usually women who did it. But I'm not gonna. I'm sure at some point there were men doing it as well, and that's horrifying to think about. But uh, yeah, that's an assault, basically. Yeah, it's so invasive, and I've noticed. Okay. In my reading of witch trials, that mm-hmm. for women, the witch's tea is almost always found in the secret parts. Yes. For men, it's parts. on their shoulder or their neck or something. Yeah. It's that interesting. Yeah. So, yeah, they didn't get the same. <laughs> almost like someone's just really preoccupied with the female genitalia. <laughs> there's so much, there's so much here that is just so clear, so clearly just. Preoccupied, but unaware at the same time. It's surprising that they couldn't start to understand it since they were looking at it and talking so much. If they had midwives looking for it, these midwives must have seen things like that before. So why would they be so quick to say, were they pressured into saying it ever that it was a witch? I don't know. That's the thing is you always wish you could be there and see the things that happened that weren't written about. And I can only imagine... I can only imagine. I bet some women went through some really horrible things. Rebecca said, take another look. Have an actual expert look because the report is wrong. Yeah. Her cases. That's a tough one. That's a real, real sad She's my ninth great grandma. So I get real testy about her situation. Oh, do you have any more? Is that the only two? Mary Hale and Rebecca Nurse? I mean, that's a lot. it is a lot. Mary Esty, her sister, their grandchildren married, yeah. and I descend. There's a line of Russells that goes down several generations, and I descend out of there. Wow. And so I knew about That's Rebecca since I was a teenager. And then as I started doing my own research seven years ago or so, I realized, oh, Mary is my grandmother too. And then a few years after that, I discovered Winifred on my dad's side of my tree and then i'm like oh i want to find out where her memorial is and then the rest is when did your family leave new england because they must have been there early they all left pretty quickly so the town descendants moved into vermont that Mm -hmm. i come from and then my line left vermont about five generations back from me and moved into the midwest so i am i'm an iowan and all of my New England ancestors, and there's a lot, they ended up coming through Ohio, Minnesota, yep. Illinois, Iowa. Oh, that's fascinating. Mm-hmm. My husband, he's, his family, it's like they came over from England and they're still there. Like, they never, it's, he's, oh my gosh, he's related to so many colonial people. And like I said, Susanna Martin is his ancestor, which I find, I always look at my kids and think, wow, it's really cool because she was such a firecracker. I really think that's a plus to be a descendant of Susanna Martin. She was awesome. awesome. Um, but he, let's see, I think he's a town as well. 
somehow not a direct descendant of one of the sisters, but one of a descendant of one of their brothers, I think. I have no ancestors that I know of. My, all my ancestors were Quakers. Not, I haven't found any that were actually executed, but definitely put in jail a lot. Yeah, I'm also a Mary Esty descendant. Wow. My grandfather was from Danvers, and he just okay. moved to California after World War II. Was the Navy sent him there, and he stayed. So up until two generations ago, a quarter of my family, at least, was Essex County all You're the way back. Danvers. That's fascinating. Yeah, pretty recently, just, uh, yeah, just a couple generations ago, I feel a closeness to Danvers in that area. And I love Danvers. I love it. Like dozens of ancestors and close relatives yeah. that were involved in Salem on mm. the accuser side as well as the accused and yeah. the in-between, just playing different roles, giving testimony, signing petitions. Yeah. Her letter, Mary Eastie's letter, that that blows my mind. They just the PBS Museum had a, an exhibit, a Salem Witch Trials exhibit, and they actually had the actual piece of paper on display, and that was crazy to see. Yeah, yeah, you know that no more innocent should die. She said yeah. that in 1692, mm-hmm. and yep. that hasn't stopped yet. So I'm really motivated by those words of her to keep yeah. pulling out the education and pushing out the word because the innocent need to stop dying. They, Those women who were pleading for their lives then didn't want others to suffer. Yeah. And it's happening yeah. again and again. Yeah. I was curious if you wanted to tell us anything about the hanging site in Boston. Yeah. Traditionally, people have believed that in the 17th century, hangings were on Boston Common. And I know that in later centuries, actually, there were a few people hanged on Boston Common, as we know it today. But in the 17th century, there were other pieces of land that were common land. And if you look at the maps from the early 18th century that exist, the gallows was actually on Boston Neck, on some common land there. It's likely that sort of led to the misconception that they were happening on Boston Common because that was also Boston land. So there is evidence, at least by the mid-17th century, that, yeah, people were the gallows. People were being executed on Boston Neck, which was this little tiny strip of land that connected the Shawmut Peninsula to the mainland. Now there's a bunch of landfill around it. It's There isn't a tiny little strip of land anymore. But it's clearly marked on these early 18th century maps that that was the execution site. So basically, instead of hanging them in the center of town, they're taking them out towards the edge of town. Which was usually the case in 17th century New England is they would execute people outside of town. Which is Mm -hmm. a possible detail in Connecticut, in Hartford, possibly. We don't know. Do they? I don't. You know what? I'm so uneducated about the Connecticut trials, even though I find them absolutely fascinating. Do they have a know of the execution site in Hartford? We think that we have a leading contender for it. Okay, it's there's an old land transfer from the early 18th century that references a plot of land where the gallows once stood. And you can trace that who owned that land 
through the generations up till now, how it's transferred over the years and what it's transformed into. But there's a legend that goes along with it of the witch elm. And back in 1930, they tore this witch elm down. So Mm -hmm. that doesn't Mm -hmm. stand there anymore. But the gallows were supposedly like near that tree. That tree was the landmark. It used to be on a rise, which has since been Mm -hmm. graded down level. But it was up above and it's about a mile from downtown Hartford. So again, it was on the edge. It was on a road leading to the cow pasture. And uh, yeah, it's just at the edge of what the town was at the time. Yeah. Yeah. Which that is to be expected, which is the reason why Boston Neck is such a better location than Boston Common, Mm -hmm. because it was on the outside of town. So that at least Ann Hibbins and Goody Glover, I'm pretty sure, would have been Boston Neck. And would have they discarded the bodies right there? I think that was usually the practice with executions. I don't specifically know of any evidence, but it's probably it's safe to say that is most likely what would have happened. Yep. Okay. The question. <laughs> what lessons can we learn from the past witch trials that we could apply today? Oh, man. Yeah, that's it. I actually love, as a historian, on the one hand, you'd have to be able to recognize that the past is unique and that it has to be looked at for the sake of looking at it. And it has to be looked at from its own perspective. But that being said, I think I do think that there are lessons. I do think that if history doesn't necessarily repeat itself, but it, it rhymes. Someone said that once. I cannot remember who said that, but I loved it that history rhymes. So I think it is very useful to look for lessons. And as far as witch trials go, I think the lesson is to not get carried away. If you're looking at things like Salem, singling people out and demonizing them is something that humans have always done. But we can get into this sort of mode where we're not even seeing clearly anymore, where it's just like other people aren't even people to us anymore. And I think being able to pull ourselves back and ground ourselves back in in a place where we can look at others and actually see them as people is really important. And it's scary because America today and like how divided we are, it's such a cliche, but it's true. And people, I feel like people don't even really see the humanity of other people at times. So I think that's the lesson. It's just stay in touch with people's humanity, other people's humanity. Don't forget about it. So I think that's probably one of the biggest lessons. I think that's such a good reminder because if things are hard and ugly, which surround a lot of witch hunting situations, and Mm -hmm. you hold on to that strand of humanity yeah it's the lifeline yeah Yeah. it can pull everyone through to the other side less harmed working together finding the common ground healing through something together instead of divided would be great absolutely yeah to think more about what you have in common than what might be different that i think that loss of humanity is in it you see it in all kinds of discrimination and 
singling out of people. So it's just important to not forget that we need to take care of each other. That is just like something that is just gets so lost today is there's just no concept of, of I think, the, the sort of importance of taking care of other people is just like completely lost in our political discourse today. <laughs> it's all about seeing the humanity of others, for sure. Right now, there's a lack of a collective, a feeling of that our society is a collective right. a, society. A social contract. Yeah. Yes. It's more, yeah. I'm Everybody out first. for me. Yeah. Exactly. And you're out for you. Yeah. Yeah, and then okay. it's easy if I have a problem to go yeah. blame it on somebody else. I don't want to take exactly. responsibility. Right. Like the case you mentioned earlier where with the nurse and the baby died because she had it out in the cold. Yeah. If that's the way it went down. It's yeah. the same kind of thing today where something bad happens and you weren't prepared for it. And instead right. of saying, how could I have prepared for this? You say, who's responsible? Exactly. Yeah. There's just that loss of the idea of actually being responsible for the people around you. We talked to economist Boris Gershman about what can be done about witch trials. And mm -hmm. he was talking about how having a social safety net is important yeah. because people are less likely to go out looking for who to blame if they've got exactly. some kind of backup insurance. Yep. And mm -hmm. I've heard that the ending of the early modern witch hunts, yep. it coincided with a lot of institutionalization, but it also coincided with the advent of insurance. I think that's valid. Absolutely. And when people are without any sort of help or any sense that things are going to get better, that they can be better. Yeah, absolutely. The tendency for human beings is to lash out and blame someone. But yeah, no, I think there's absolutely something to that makes sense. To change the subject a little bit, the question that just came to me was, had to do with uh, Matthew Hopkins of England, the infamous <laughs> witchfinder general that he called himself. Yep. <laughs> He wrote his book, A Discovery of Witches, and in that book, he talks about his methods that he used, and those included things like watching people to uh -huh. see if their familiars came to feed. Were any of those techniques employed in the Massachusetts witch trials? Yes. Margaret Jones was watched, and that was... It's funny because it was, it's around the same time that's happening in England. So they are reading and hearing about Matthew Hopkins and that's evidence that they're using some of the same tactics here. So that's great evidence of the sort of back and forth that's happening between England and New England at the time. She was watched while she was in jail. And I mean, I, I it could be seen as a form of torture, really. <laughs> it's Matthew Hopkins. Wow. That whole thing was horrifying. Again, Paul Moyer's book, which, why can't I think of the title? Detestable and Wicked Arts. That's it. Yes, I love it. I've read it twice. He actually does. He makes that argument that it's not a coincidence that this all starts up in New England in around 47, 48, that they are hearing about what he's doing and going for it. 
And I think that makes a lot of sense. Yeah, I think. But people... as far as his methods go, I think Margaret Jones is the only one that I can think of specifically that we know one of his tactics was used. Okay. Yeah. I think that people have this vision of New England as really being this independent entity, but yeah. it's obviously it was very close with England, even though not Absolutely. geographically. Right. You talked right. about the flow of information going back and forth. Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. They're they're English. These are English people living across the Atlantic Ocean, but they're still English. And there is this back and forth around the time of the English Civil Wars. And you have people going back to England to fight for Cromwell. And you even have Hugh Peters, who's one of the first Salem reverends who goes back and he becomes, he's executed. He's one of the regicides who's executed for being a conspirator in the death of Charles I. So there's absolutely, and there has been some written about this. I feel like it's not a ton, but I feel it's an area that's probably rich for a lot more research. But you do see these events in history that really remind you that these are English people living in New England. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it is interesting, like you said, when yeah. these witch trials start in New England, because yeah. in Connecticut, you have Alice Young in 1647, and that's... It's- Matthew right on the Hopkins nose. Time right there. Yeah, it's right there. It's something that I actually wondered about years ago and was like, I wonder if that's a thing. And that Boyer's book comes out and he just really lays it all out like in a way that is just, it's so obvious that and it's crazy that no one had ever really explicitly stated that before. Mm-hmm. But that's another book that I highly recommend if you're interested in this because it's just phenomenal. Another great book on that Malcolm Gaskell's The Ruin of All yep. Witches. And oh my gosh, um, that book. <laughs> he also talks about the other factor in New England's settled first in 1620, and then Salem's founded in yep. 1626. And yeah. there's people there for a couple of decades before you start to see these witch right. trials. And yes. I thought that his explanation of it takes a lot of like neighborhood friction, basically building right. up these tensions yeah. and suspicions mm-hmm. build up over the years. Yeah. They don't have beefs with anyone yet. It's everyone's just gotten here. So it takes some time for sure. That's a, an absolutely spot on observation. I love that book. That book is just talk about humanizing people mm-hmm. from the past. He really just makes it feel so immediate. That's my favorite. Yeah. Thing. Malcolm Gaskell is not only is he this has to become like a Malcolm Gaskell love fest. Not only is he <laughs> a phenomenal historian, but he is such an incredible writer. Mm-hmm. That book, like if you want to get, if you want to feel close to the people that this happened to, that's the book to read for sure. Either that or Marilyn Roach, Six Women of Salem is the same sort of deal. That book just makes you feel like really another example of a great historian and a fantastic writer. Those two just really make you feel close to those victims, for sure. Yeah, it's like reading a novel or a, a, almost a memoir. It is. It's so personal. and It is. And Malcolm Gaskell and Marilyn Roach, both just the details that they put in there. I it know. It makes it just seem so real, like you're watching it unfold. Yeah, it is. It's almost like watching a movie. Yes. <laughs> It's 
those books are so good. Yeah, they're great. What do you think, Josh? What else should we extract? <laughs> we haven't talked about Alice Lake. Do you have anything Alice. you want to say about yeah. Alice Lake? I, she is so fascinating to me. I know I say that about everyone because they're all fascinating, but Alice Lake, I try, I have tried so hard to find more information about her and I cannot find a darn thing, let me tell you. And that's probably actually something that I'll continue looking for in the future because I just need to know more about it. (laughs) Yes. So yeah, just to talk about, so the only evidence we have for what happened to Alice Lake is Hale. It's just his explanation of her being executed for witchcraft. Okay, so Alice Lake, she's from Dorchester, and she's tried and executed, we think, about 1651. What Hale says is, okay, so on the day of her execution, she's visited by Reverend William Thompson of Braintree, who is trying to convince her to repent her sins. And she denied she was guilty of witchcraft. She said, I'm innocent, but, and this is, this part is so sad. She said, I'm innocent, but I deserve to die, basically, for my past sins. And she said, and I have her quote here from Hale, she explained that she had when a single woman played the harlot and being with child used means to destroy the fruit of her body to conceal her sin and shame. So basically she had an abortion and she said, I deserve to die because I had an abortion. And I just, that is just so poignantly sad to me. She saw herself as actually, she believed that she was a murderer. And it just makes you think a lot about how these different like women's issues and these events that happen in women's lives, like how those interplayed with the belief in witchcraft. And actually infanticide is something that you see a lot that coincides with witchcraft accusations. And there's also suspicions of infanticide or maybe actual infanticide. Parsons is a good example of that as well. So it's just more of that issue of like women in witchcraft. Like I feel like there's just so much more there to look into and examine. And Alice Lake, it's funny because we actually know her children end up in Rhode Island with their father. And so it's just, it's crazy that we like know what happens to them, but we know so little about her life, like almost nothing. There was one more bit of, of information about her, and it was a letter to Increase Mather from his brother. Nathaniel told Increase he heard Alice Lake was lured by the devil when he appeared to her in the likeness and acting the part of a child of hers than lately dead on whom her heart was much set. So there you go. There's another just devastating event in a woman's life that could in some way be tied to an accusation of witchcraft. It's just really sad. It's You think about all the pain. And then on top of that, then she's executed for witchcraft. It's just awful. And she thinks she deserves it. So yeah, Alice Leake is someone to me who is just especially fascinating. And I really wish I could find out more about her. It reminded me of some other stories of women who decide that having an accusation brought against them means that they've Mm -hmm. done something else wrong other than they know that they're not witches, but they look, what other sin did I commit that this is happening to me? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And and in modern politics, there are some men, politicians, who would believe that because they said that when we were 
Um, yeah, when we were testifying for the exoneration of the Connecticut mm. victims, there were some politicians that were highly concerned that we did not touch what other moral infractions these culprits would have participated in, that we only acknowledge the compact with the devil because surely they were bad people there must already. Be. Yeah. yeah, that's scary. And then when you talk about lessons, you can learn. It feels like it's right. It really does sometimes feel like we're ripe for something like this to happen. And I hope I'm wrong. I really do. I hope it doesn't go that far. It's, but in, I know it is happening in other places for sure. It, I just feel like it's going to come down to <laughs> the people standing up. And, but it's that whole concept of speaking up for those that aren't in the room. That's yeah, what's going to stop absolutely. it. There, mm-hmm. there was this one attack in Papua New Guinea where a brave mm-hmm. son pulled his mother off of the fire who was being burned for witchcraft belief. Oh and she was harmed and she, she is suffering from what she went through, but he mm-hmm. was brave and saved her life. And those are the types of actions that people will have to keep stepping up and doing because it is yeah. possible for sanctioned witch trials to happen again. It, there's, it yeah. could happen. Oh, 100%. Yeah, it could happen for sure. It could absolutely happen. And I spend so much time these days, like just looking at that rhyming, like I was talking about yeah. that rhyming between history and being pretty freaked out by it. Honestly, <laughs> it's just interesting, too, that we've been saying this whole time that all this stuff about women is happening again. And it just all feels so familiar. It really does. And now Mary Bingham is back for Minute with Mary. Sarah Jack recently asked the listeners a vital question in a past episode of this podcast, Ending Sorcery-Related Violence with Miranda Forsyth, as part of the End Witch Hunt News segment. Sarah's question, is your family precious? My answer, you bet. Sarah was referring not only to each of our nuclear families, she also challenged me as a listener, to place myself in families where witchcraft accusations destroyed that tight family unit. These accusations, where the wrongful accused were murdered, caused harmful disruption and displacement, which not only sadly affected one generation, but many to follow. This was the case of four-year-old Dorothy Good in 1692, whose story was so eloquently told in the episode of this podcast, Rachel Christone on the Salem Witch Museum and the Life of Dorothy Good. This was also the case for Katari Lanyata's six-year-old daughter, who was viciously attacked for supposedly bewitching her friend, who became seriously ill and died. As was the belief in 1692 when Dorothy Good's mother, Sarah, was hanged for witchcraft, some still believed that witchcraft or sorcery, as it is known in Kapari's home country of Papua New Guinea, is passed down from mother to daughter. You might remember that Kapari was brutally murdered for the false accusation of sorcery herself when her daughter was only eight months old 
leaving behind not only this precious infant, but a son and a husband as well. This family unit was smashed into pieces. Her daughter's vicious attack happened in 2017. However, there was hope when activists Ruth Kissam and Anton Lutz stepped in and saved the girl's life. Ruth welcomed her into her home and family. Ruth's brothers and nephews took such good care that she was able to find a new safety net. Ruth's family became her own. For more information on Kapari's story, please read my two articles regarding her case and that of her daughter on Medium.com, Kapari Lanyata, and Kapari Lanyata, Her Legacy Lives On. Please listen to the two podcast episodes with Miranda Forsyth and Rachel Christone. Place yourself in these situations. Always stay tuned to listen to Sarah's End Witch Hunt News for current global news as to how communities and organizations fight daily to stop deadly witch hunts. Then visit endwitchhunts.org to see how you can help to save a life. Thank you. Thank you, Mary. Here's Sarah with End Witch Hunts News. End Witch Hunts, a nonprofit 501c3 weekly news update. So what exactly is this history camp Boston that you heard about in Alyssa Connery's episode? It starts with The Pursuit of History, a nonprofit organization. They engage adults in conversation about history by connecting them with historic sites in their communities and across the country through innovative, in-person, and online programming. Their in-person annual events include History Camp Boston, Pursuit of History Weekends, and the weekly live, online, in-depth History Camp discussions with noted historians and authors. History Camp Boston 2023 is about to become history, so don't miss it. It's in Boston, August 11th through the 13th, and they offer a scholarship for a free day for students for the August 12th date. See our show notes for the link. Get there. Every week, Thou Shalt Not Suffer podcast brings both the history of the past witch trials and news and education about the current global effort of ending modern witch hunts. Would you be surprised to hear that the United States is engaged in global development partnerships that can affect witch hunt violence? In 2023, the United States has now kicked off a 10-year long-term initiative that will impact witch hunt violence. The U.S. strategy to prevent conflict and promote stability is a long-term initiative to redefine how the United States prevents violence and advances stability in areas vulnerable to conflict. As you have learned from our academic, economist, and activist interviews and suggested books and other research reading, addressing witchcraft-related violence begins with offering solutions for communities that may reduce gender violence and offer stability for the vulnerable. The countries and communities targeted in this strategy are coastal West Africa, Haiti, Libya, Mozambique, and Papua New Guinea. Quote, These plans represent a meaningful long-term commitment by the United States to build the political and economic resilience of partner societies by making strategic investments in prevention to mitigate the underlying vulnerabilities that can lead to conflict and violence and are critical to achieving lasting peace. President Joseph R. Biden, Jr., March 24, 2023. Please read about this initiative now. Click the link in our show notes to see the USAID pamphlet on this initiative. Have you heard of the U.S. government agency USAID? The United States Agency for International Development, USAID, is, quote, the world's premier international development agency and a catalytic actor driving development results. 
USAID's work advances U.S. national security and economic prosperity, demonstrates American generosity, and promotes a path to recipient self-reliance and resilience. The USAID receives its funding from Congress. Thank you for being a part of the Thou Shalt Not Suffer podcast community. We appreciate your listening and support. Keep sharing our episodes with your friends. Have conversations with them about what you are learning and how you want to jump in and end witch hunts with your particular abilities, influence, and network. Community development that works to end witch hunts is an ongoing, long-term collective effort for all of us to participate in. You can learn by visiting our websites and the websites listed in our show notes for more information about country-specific advocacy groups and development plans in motion across the globe. Get involved. Visit endwitchhunts.org. And now that it's back to school pregame time, be sure to share our link with your teacher friends. To support us, make a tax-deductible donation, purchase books from our bookshop, or merch from our Zazzle shop. Have you considered supporting the production of the podcast by joining us as a super listener? You can be a super listener by committing to as little as $3 a month. But don't stop there if you are really excited about our programming. Go ahead and add a zero to that three. Your super listener donation is tax deductible. Thank you for being a part of our work. Thank you, Sarah. You're welcome. And thank you for listening to Thou Shalt Not Suffer, the Witch Trial Podcast. Please join us next week. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Visit us this week at thoushaltnotsuffer.com. Remember to tell your friends about the show. Support our efforts to end witch hunts. Visit endwitchhunts.org to learn more. Please rate and review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you're listening. Have a great today and a beautiful tomorrow.